This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with A Doctor Delivers Podcast. Today, I am discussing black women and infertility with reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, Dr. Kimmy Nuradine. Have a listen. So, I am super excited to have Dr. Kimmy Nuradine with me today. Um, she is in Houston, Texas, and works at Houston Fertility Institute, which is where I went when I had my babies, and that's how I met you. I think you were seeing me for one of my visits. Is that right, if I remember correctly? I think so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, uh, anyway, so what offices do you go to in Houston? Like, where all do you see patients in Houston area? So, I actually for offices, obviously. I cover the medical center location. Um, I also cover the Clear Lake and Cypress office. Okay. Now, you are cutting out a bit. Um, let me see. Are you on Wi-Fi or? Yeah, I'm on Wi-Fi, but I can change that. If I need to. Actually, that was whatever you did was a little bit better. So maybe okay. um, if it, if it continues, then maybe uh, we can get off the Wi-Fi. But right now, okay, uh, side torts. Can you hear myself and Dr. Nuradine now? Is that better? Hello, hello. It's better on my end. Okay. Uh, I fancy cupcakes. I know you were watching, hun. Can you tell me if you can hear us? Okay. Someone just let me know, so, and then we'll get started. Yeah. What about for me? Are you able to hear my voice okay? I can hear you better. Yes, it just started. Uh, I fancy cupcakes. Okay, we're better. Okay. So, okay, I fancy great. cupcakes. So, yes, we just started. We had some connection issues. So, here we go. Okay. Wonderful. Perfect. Thank you so much. So, um, I'm going to start over. I am Dr. Shannon Clark with Babies After 35. I am a maternal fetal medicine specialist, but I also went through a lot of for, uh, fertility issues, and that's how I met Dr. Kimmy Nuradine. She is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist with Houston Fertility Institute. And say again, just what, where do you see patients? Which offices? Yeah, so I cover three offices. My three offices include the Clear Lake location, the medical center office, and then also the Cypress location. Okay, one question. Do you have earphones by, ch uh, headphones by chance that you could plug into your phone? Uh, sure, I can try that. Try that, because there's okay. a little, uh, there's, people are saying that you're getting an echo, so. Okay, no problem. We're gonna work it out, guys, don't worry. <laughs> With everybody being uh, remote, sometimes you get, yeah, side torts, we're gonna try to fix that. Um, I'm gonna ask her to put on some headphones, so maybe that will help. And then we'll dive in. Actually, I will put my headphones on too. So in case there is an issue, once she puts hers on. Let's see. I hope that's better. <laughs> yeah, I, it's better on my end. Everybody look, okay. can hear okay? So we, yeah, it was just a lot of um, like an Echoing. echo or feedback back from you, yeah. Okay. Okay, here we go. I'll try to move around here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So anyway, I thank you for spending your Saturday with me because no this worries. is a very important topic. And I'm super excited that you decided to do this with me. So we're going to dive right in. If at any time anybody can't hear or there's a problem with hearing, somebody please just message me so we can try to fix it, okay? And you can just do it in the comments. We're going to go through, I, I have already went through some questions that I want to ask Dr. Nuradine and sure. um, that we definitely want to address. But, you know, I want to keep this under um, an hour 
Um, sure. So now we're down to 45 minutes. So bear with us. Okay. Um, no we're worries. going to hit it. Okay, first. So, you know, I've done a lot of reading about this and I've also mm -hmm. heard from my own patients and friends um, about there being a particular stigma in the black community surrounding women with infertility and then which possible, well, I'm sure leads to silence on the, mm -hmm. on the part of the black woman who is going through uh, infertility. Can you comment on that? Why is that? Why has that happened? Is it getting yeah. better? Is it, what's going on? Well, you know, basically since slavery, there's been a suggestion that black women are naturally fertile. And unfortunately, this perception has lingered for centuries. You know, despite our current data saying otherwise, the perception is still rooted in our culture. Um, the perception is not only in the black community, but even in other communities, their perception of black women and fertility. So this common uh, misconception makes it a little harder for women to feel um, that they're part of a group that's undergoing um, similar experience. So it can be very isolating. When you're thought of as being super fertile and more in need of birth control, it makes it really mm -hmm. hard to seek help when you're having that difficulty getting pregnant. So out of our most ethnic groups, we're less likely to know someone who has gone through fertility treatment. Mm -hmm. um, we feel a lot of challenge to our femininity when it comes mm -hmm. to our you know, fertility um, struggles. Um, so it makes it very difficult to want to pursue help and it makes it very isolating. So with the cultural pressures and expectations, it can be very challenging to move forward. So, I, I mean, I can imagine it's very isolating, especially for a female who's going through this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is the pressure, do you think it's it probably equally both on not wanting to let the family members know that she is struggling, trying mm -hmm. to come to terms with it herself? Is it kind of multifactorial? You know, I, we're gonna, I was going to ask you, you know, I also read that women do mm -hmm. seek Black women seek fertility service services less often. Is that the reason why, or is there are there multiple reasons why women, black women, are hesitating to seek for treatment? It's 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 multifactorial. I mm -hmm. think we are disproportionately affected by infertility. Mm -hmm. We have cultural pressures, and then when we do seek treatment, there usually is something that needs to be tackled. And unfortunately, there are going to be some medical background, medical history that makes it a little bit more challenging for black women to pursue treatment. And some black women don't have experience having family members, mothers, mm. sisters who are willing to talk to them about um, pursuing treatment. And unfortunately, some black women who have pursued it have had negative experiences that have sure. made it difficult to, for them to want to talk about it with other mm -hmm. women, share their experience, um, or even continue trying after that negative experience that they've had before. Sure. So, and you already talked about this, the increasing rate yeah. of, of infertility in black women. Mm -hmm. um, is that just because we're having new data on it? Is it actually increasing? Are we doing more studies on it? Is, is it pretty much always been the same and now we know more about it? What do you think about, about those stats? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with more available information. I okay. think we are able to diagnose and do more research when it comes to fertility treatment in the black community. We have plenty of studies now basically looking at comparison of outcomes of IVF for women, black versus Caucasian, and we're actually seeing poorer outcomes, poorer implantation rates, poorer pregnancy rates, and they're all, basically they are protecting for factors that may play a role such as BMI and fibroids. Some of these studies have tried to con basically control for those factors, and they're still finding lower yeah. rates for some unknown reason. So when we talk about black women having 
and more increased rate of infertility. Yes, we are seeing those numbers that's shown in the research. And uh, with everything that we have now, we just still don't have all the answers of why we're not seeing those outcomes, even when we protect for certain risk factors. Right. And so, you know, we've, just, we've discussed that we are seeing increasing rates. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think it's great that we're doing more studies and there actually is more out there on, uh, on studies, particularly in, in black women and, and having infertility. But another thing that I saw and read about was mm -hmm. uh, the access to care is not equal at baseline. And one of the reasons why that was stated in the literature is, um, for one, waiting longer to seek treatment. And then once they do seek treatment, their disease or whatever it is that's causing them to be infertile, they're further along in that disease process. Is that what you're seeing as a, yes. as a reproductive specialist? And yeah, so we have that stigma. And of course, access to care plays a big role in it. But, you know, we're even still seeing, you know, unfortunately, there's still some factors that are playing a role even in those states that have access to care meaning those mandated states are still seeing that black women are seeking treatment at a later age um, or a later time. They're still not seeking it, even though they may have, they may be in a state that has insurance coverage for it. Um, as far as factors that play a role, there's a mistrust in the medical system that mm -hmm. stems from our history in the U.S. when it comes to medical care. Um, there's also the lack of representation in healthcare providers. So it yeah. makes it a little bit difficult um, when you're pursuing that route as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, with given with everything that we've heard, and, and I, you know, being uh, present on social media, I have been so, it's been so exciting to hear uh, female physicians that are coming up and stepping in, uh, relaying this information, not just in the infertility realm, but in general, where mm -hmm. access to care is not is not equal, and it, it covers all fields. So it's yeah. something that we have to, as, as, as physicians, uh, we have to recognize and understand and, and try to change. So, you know, the first, one of the first steps is, you know, making sure, and again, this is from my point of view, because I mm -hmm. often see black, black women who have become pregnant, and we'll talk about fibroids a little bit later, and that's probably mm -hmm. the one thing that I deal with the most once they're pregnant. But right. as far as the most common causes, you know, first, mm -hmm. we'll talk about fibroids specifically, but I wanted sure. to touch on the tubal factor. So yes. the tubal factor is one of the more common causes. Um, what, uh, talk about what is tubal factor infertility? What does yeah. that mean? So when we talk about tubal factor infertility, we are talking actually about the fallopian tubes. And that is where the egg and sperm meet. And they actually, they meet, they make an embryo. That embryo travels down the tube to make it to the uterus. So with conception, to conceive naturally, we need those tubes to be functioning. Mm -hmm. When it comes to tubal factor infertility, we, have, we basically lack that access. So the sperm is unable to get to the egg. That fertilized egg is unable to get to the uterus. There are many reasons you can have tubal factor infertility. Some of it comes from prior surgery. So there's scar tissue in your pelvis from maybe mm -hmm. a ruptured appendix. Um, sexually transmitted diseases also can play a role with affecting the fallopian tubes. And then something called endometriosis, mm -hmm. um, which is something we're born with. Um, and endometriosis can have different stages that can affect ovaries, tubes, pelvic pain, uterus. Um, all of these things can play a role tubal factor. There have been some studies that show black women may be more at risk for tubal factor. In fact, there was a survey that actually looked at the infertility knowledge for black women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them didn't know that yeah. prior pelvic infections can lead to tubal factor and can yeah. affect their future fertility. So yeah. tubal factor is definitely a big, plays a big role. I mean, and that's for women across the board, but, you know, and a lot of times they, I doing prenatal care, I see that they mm -hmm. have a history at a younger age, 
mm-hmm. possibly of sexually transmitted diseases in general, mm-hmm. just women in general. But then once they get older and decide to become moms, that something that happened when they were younger may have affected their tubes. So right. that education right. earlier on, I mean, it starts early, um, right. you know, educating young females about the potential um, of having uh, tubal damage with certain sexually transmitted diseases. Would you agree? I would agree, definitely. Yeah. And, it, and it's part of the education. When you sit down yeah. with your provider, that's one of the first things we bring up. I bring it up as far as infection, surgery, yeah. even appendicitis, you know, just little things like that. I just go and dive into the history to see what could have caused this tubal factor. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so the next one, one topic I want to talk about as mm-hmm. far as a common cause would be PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that's particularly predominant in uh, African-American women you know, or? You know, I see it. I can't say I see it more in African-American women. I think okay. it's uh, pretty spread across the board when you see it in the patient population. Um, PCOS is linked to a lot of other um, Basically, there's some findings of PCOS you may see in black women as far as obesity. Um, some women may notice that they have these irregular cycles, acne, skin changes that go along with the PCOS. Um, so you will see some of that. A lot of the times when I see a black woman with PCOS who is a little overweight, I'll talk to them about weight loss because that 10% weight loss can yeah. actually help improve ovulation right away. So like I said, it's sometimes it comes, education may come into play sure. at that point. And, yeah, and, and you touched on a good point. You know, uh, one of the things that I hear from women is they assume that they go to see someone such as yourself. The first mm-hmm. thing and the only thing you're going to say is let's sign you up for IVF. Yeah. And that's not true. That's no. not true. I think, uh, by and large, most uh, are in reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists, mm-hmm. we use the term REI. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I think your all's goal is to educate and help them to ho- hopefully, if they could do it on their own, to do it on their own. So, I, I mean, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, honestly, when a patient comes to my office, you know, we do these consultations all the time. And this, a lot of, you know, people are nervous. They're yeah. worried what you're going to say. The first thing I say is, let's just have a conversation. Let's just see mm-hmm. kind of what your goals are and get some education on what you can, where you can go from here. You know, sometimes patients will leave the office and we, all we talked about was time intercourse and using yeah. the ovulation predictor kits. Like this is what it takes, you know, as far as the timing. And if you don't want to pee on a stick, make mm-hmm. it a little bit easier on yourself, try intercourse two or three times a week. And if you're not pregnant by this time, come back and sit down with me. Yeah. And, you know, for some women, there may not be a partner re- available. So then we'll start talking about, let's check your egg count. Let's just see how things are for you right now and know where you stand. So in the future, when you're ready, we kind of know where you were. And if we need to compare, we're ready. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is not about starting IVF. It's all mm-hmm. about just finding out about you right. and what your goals are and just learning about what your options are. Yeah, and I can't stress enough about the importance. I I feel, and I've said this before, and Mm -hmm. this, I haven't gotten, I've gotten a little bit of feedback about this that wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily positive, but look, general OBGYNs, and I say this every Mm -hmm. chance I get, are great to some degree (laughs) when it comes to fertility treatments, but that's not what they do every day, all day long. If you really want to get a good assessment of your fertility or why you're not getting pregnant, or if you're thinking about delaying childbearing, or if, you know, you just want to know what's up mm-hmm. about your fertility, the, the big, best bang for your buck you're going to get is with one of someone like Dr. Nuradine, because this is what she does every day. And I think it's a lot easier for us to manage some of the details yes. when it comes to this. OBGYNs are so busy. Believe me, yeah. we've all done that residency. They're mm-hmm. delivering babies at two o'clock yeah. in the morning. They're monitoring. They're doing annual exams. They're, they're 
schedule is crazy busy. So we understand mm -hmm. we're able to take that time to take care of things before you get pregnant, help mm -hmm. you conceive and even monitor your pregnancy during the first trimester. During the time when the OB wants to start seeing you is usually the time that we're going to monitor you before you before you transition yeah. to them. So yeah. we we totally understand that their schedule is busy. We have the time to do that. That's yeah, our yeah. that's our job. Right. Good. Okay. So let's, I want to talk specifically about fibroids because this yes. is probably one of the most common mm -hmm. questions I get from black mm -hmm. women who reach out to me on social media. So I'm just going yeah. to touch on a few, I want to get these few stats out there. The first is that, uh, fibroids are the leading cause of infertility in black women. Um, they have, uh, when compared to Caucasian women at each age range, they do have more fibroids mm -hmm. by the end of the reproductive years, almost up to 80% of black women will have fibroids. Um, and they even developed fibroids at a younger age than uh, their counterparts. So, you know, let's first talk about what is a fibroid? Yeah. What is a fibroid? So uterine fibroids are benign tumors that grow in the wall of the uterus, okay? So for a lot of patients, they can be asymptomatic. Um, these fibroids can occur on the outside of your uterus, they can occur in the wall of your uterus, and they can occur inside the uterus where the baby grows. And like I said, they're benign. Now they can grow to different sizes. Um, more significant, larger sizes obviously are gonna impact um, your reproduction a little bit more than others. Um, a lot of women, like I said, will be asymptomatic. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to do a surgery as soon as you find out you have a fibroid. It really depends on the location. A lot of times mm -hmm. we can just leave them alone and monitor them because they don't always impact your reproductive outcomes. Right, so that's why it's also important to get your routine uh, well, women exams yearly so that if you do have them, they are picked up early and a, and a plan can be made on to how uh, to follow, whether to follow or, you know, yeah. whatever. Again, Dr. Nerdig touched on that there are some fibroids that are called submucosal and they're located under the lining of the, uh, the endometrial cavity, which is where we have our periods every month. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when they're located there, that could affect implantation of a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen women who did get pregnant and the fibroids are massive. They can cause... Uh, pain because a lot of times they outgrow their blood supply because they do get big um, or they can have preterm labor um, because the fibroid is it not allowing uh, it is not allowing the uterus to open to mm -hmm. accommodate the baby like it should so fib yes women can get pregnant with fibroids but yeah. they can also not get pregnant or have trouble getting pregnant with fibroids exactly mm -hmm. and i'll give an example even sure. with submucosal fibroids you may not even see them on ultrasound so when we do our evaluation we do a procedure called a hysteroscopy Mm -hmm. where we actually look inside the uterus. And sometimes we'll find a little bitty fibroid that's in a, a centimeter in size. We have studies that suggest that just having that fibroid yeah. in place affects the lining all around the uterus where the baby can implant. So having it there affects other places that the embryo would implant. So we have yeah. to keep that in mind that we can't ignore submucosal fibroids no matter what size they are, just because they can impact your pregnancy or chance for pregnancy. Right. Uh, I had a, a good friend who... Um, knew she had fibroids, but they were rather large. Mm -hmm. And every woman, uh, start by saying every woman's different. Just because mm -hmm. you get a diagnosis of fibroids doesn't mean you're infertile. Right. It's knowledge to have right. so that you can use that when the time comes. If you're already having issues, though, you're having trouble with your periods, you're bleeding heavy, you're, you know, having more than one period a month because of the fibroids, you may want to get that addressed, right. uh, you know, especially before you start trying to conceive. So it, it all depends on... I, I, Correct me if I'm wrong. It's no, you know, you're, you're where they are, if they're right. symptomatic, right? You know, right. we can't uh, let these things keep going on and on and on. And, and, and I will leave that to the next thing because yeah. 
black women are also more likely to get hysterectomies for fibroids. Right. If you get a hysterectomy, you're not going to get pregnant. So, you know, that means they get to the point where it's causing issues and the uterus comes out. So getting them addressed early would be ideal, correct? Yes, I totally agree. You'd be surprised how many black women come to our office when they've had one or two fibroid removal surgeries already. And yeah. at that point, you should be having a conversation every time you have a fibroid surgery with your doctor about your planning for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have that surgery and not at least think about your plans for pregnancy because you could be having that surgery two more times in the future mm-hmm. before you're ready. So a lot of doctors need to, we just need to make sure patients are counseled every time they have to have a fibroid surgery about future pregnancy. Right. And do we know, cause I'll see a lot of comments coming up. Do we know mm-hmm. why black women are more susceptible to getting fibroids? So, you know, we've looked at genetics, hormonal mm-hmm. factors, environmental exposures, diet, lifestyle choices. Um, they've all been studied and they can play a role, but we don't know no, this concretely yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah. More yeah. research needs to be done. Right, right. Um, So yeah, fibroids are, you know, when it comes to the pregnancy part, um, fibroids are actually very common. I see them all the time if I end up doing a C-section on a woman and they didn't even know they had them, but they can be problematic, especially if, you know, she started at a young age having them. And then sometimes they even get bigger once you have the hormones of pregnancy. So uh, if you know you have them and you, you know, can get them addressed earlier um, and determine whether or not they even need to be taken care of before you get pregnant, that's ideal. Right. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, when, when women decide that they want to uh, become pregnant, mm-hmm. how long yeah. should they be trying before they to see someone like yourself? Like oh, what kind, is there a question. certain rule? Yeah. yeah. We, so for our women who are less than 35, we usually recommend you seek help after you've had failure to achieve a pregnancy after 12 months of regular intercourse. For our women 35 and up, we usually give that a six-month window, so six months of trying. And if you're 40 and above, we say come right away because we are going to be dealing with the egg factor, basically, yeah. ovarian reserve and egg quality. So after 40, once you're 40, come in and see, see the doctor right away. I would start with a fertility specialist right away. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. I would even push it down lower. If you're, that's my, <laughs> yeah. my, my own opinion based on my, his, my personal history. I would say right. if you're having issues 37, 38 and above, go to an REI. Okay. Yeah, right away. But that's also, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I just was talking to a young lady who is in medicine. Mm-hmm. She's 28 and she has a period once every four months. And she went to her OBGYN. The OBGYN mm-hmm. said, well, that's okay. Whenever you're ready to get pregnant, <laughs> we'll just give you Clomid. That's not the right answer. No, it's not. It's not the right answer. <laughs> it, you know, if you're not having regular menstrual cycles yeah. at baseline, you need to see someone earlier. Right. Would you agree? I would agree because you have to think if a woman is cycling naturally every month, her chance for pregnancy is 20%. If you're not Mm -hmm. cycling every month, you're not Mm -hmm. making the basic 20%. So yes, our women who don't ovulate on a regular basis should go immediately. They shouldn't wait. Or if you have a partner who has a known male factor, there's no reason to wait. You should both go in. Exactly. Right. And again, I want to uh, reiterate, going to an REI does not mean they're signing you up for IVF. (laughs) They do their assessment on the, the male and the female. Mm-hmm. or the female if she's using a sperm donor, um, mm-hmm. to find the least invasive way for you to get pregnant um, and give you, like Dr. Nerdy is saying, sometimes she just has one consult, she gives them a couple recommendations, and that's all it takes. Right. So, But again, the, the importance of having regular normal menstrual cycles is extremely important. If you don't know whether or not you're having them, there's plenty of apps online. I don't know if you ever encourage women to do that. It's called like a flow app. Um, yes, so the, just, the apps can be helpful, but definitely I feel the ovulation predictor kits are helpful. 
And it can be as simple as going to your OBGYN and asking them to check a blood test to see if you've ovulated. And that's well, I mean, as far as like oh. some women don't, some women don't even know at baseline what's a normal period. Gotcha. But those apps help you track when you're having a period, your first day of your menstrual period, the last day, how your flow is doing. And then you can go in and say, this is what my periods are like. Is this normal? And, and that would be helpful uh, as an OBGYN to see that. That's true. The data from those apps can be very helpful to look at the timing of your cycle and the length yeah. of time. So yeah. yeah. And helpful. this is even before you're deciding to get pregnant. If you're just right. wanting to ha know what your periods are like and if they're normal, because there's, it's hard to know because you're not really talking to everybody about, Hey, how was your flow today? Or how, how many days did you have your period? It's not right. something that we usually talk to each other about. So, you know, using that and tracking that early, even before you're thinking about having babies is important too, so that you know what's normal and what's not. Um, exactly. Okay. So we touched on that. And then, Let's go by age. Okay. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah. I want to back up. Yeah. This whole delayed childbearing thing. <laughs> it's happening in Everywhere. all women. Mm -hmm. It was me. But it's also being listed as one of the common causes of infertility in black women. Do you find that it, this is the case that when black women are delaying childbearing uh, more so than before? And if so, why? And yes. how can that affect your fertility? So yeah, we do, we do see the delay in childbearing and it could be for multiple reasons, the same reasons that affect other ethnicities. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of women are pursue, have career pursuits and educational mm -hmm. pursuits they want to uh, you know, go through first. Um, so that's understand, understanding. Financial reasons, you know, when you're comfortable to be able to afford some of the treatments that are, yeah. that are provided by reproductive endocrinologists, yes, sometimes you're, you have a career that's taking you a little bit longer to get there and actually be able to pay for it. Um, and I mentioned earlier, mistrust of the medical system can yeah. also make it harder for women to want to pursue the, um, and then for some women, faith and religion plays a role. You know, mm -hmm. you do have some women who are going to use other, you know, basically they're going to have a little bit more faith and wait a little bit longer, um, before wanting to pursue. But yes, we are seeing that delay, not obviously in all across all ethnicities, yeah. but with black women, especially. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, you know, the potential consequences of waiting yeah too long yeah so you're yeah of course you're dealing with ovarian mm -hmm. reserve issues um with fibroids you're dealing with more larger with fibroids, fibroids yeah. getting mm -hmm. bigger exactly mm -hmm. the ovarian reserve is probably the most important you're losing the number of eggs as you get older the quality of your eggs are going down and with quality of eggs it makes it a little bit harder to conceive and with conception you're going to be more at risk for babies with basically chromosomal abnormalities yeah. so those are the consequences of waiting longer Right. And, and, you know, I'll use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. I waited, uh, you know, I didn't get married until I was 39 and I was healthy, no medical issues. I didn't take any medications. Mm -hmm. And I had out of five cycles of IVF, one genetically normal embryo. So it does happen. Um, and I, I also want to address a couple of things here while we're at it. Number one, let's see what you say since you're the expert, <laughs> is the quality of your eggs quality and let's backtrack there's quantity the number of eggs you mm -hmm. have and the quality meaning right what the genetic material within that egg if, is it okay or not right. if it, as you get older the genetic quality within that egg becomes mm -hmm. more damaged so that's that's why you hear that women who are uh, having babies later in life are at increased risk for babies with chromosomal abnormalities and pregnancy loss due to right. chromosomal abnormalities okay right. so can someone's egg quality is that inherited if her mom had a baby at 44 <laughs> i hear it all the time Mm -hmm. My grandmother had a baby at 46. I'll be able to have babies well into my 40s as well. No, unfortunately, it's not a strong correlation for that. Right. I mean, it is encouraging. I never want to discourage a patient when right. they say something like that. It just tells me, okay, well, then maybe we should, you know, 
talk about what your options are based off your family history. Um, there are studies that have looked at thousands of outcomes for IVF, and we can actually look at the risk of having an abnormal embryo based off of age. It can be stratified by age. And mm -hmm. at 38, probably half of your embryos will be normal, and the other half will be, at, be abnormal. Mm -hmm. So 38 is actually a good number to keep for some patients to keep in mind that if they are going to pursue treatment, they may want to start at that time. Just like you mentioned early, 40 may be a little bit late. Yeah, you know, yeah. At 40, it's much, the, the ratio is much lower. Well, so, if you, and we don't have yeah. the uh, benefit of having the, the chart, but I'll just digress yeah. for a minute. When my husband and I went in, mm -hmm. I'm a physician. I'm an OBGYN. That chart that shows at 40 where your egg mm -hmm. or reserve just takes a complete nosedive. My husband's right. like, <laughs> you know, and I was 40 when yeah. I went in. So, you know, that yeah. puts things in perspective. And again, I want to don't I want to say there's I'm not saying that women over 40, even over 38 can't get pregnant naturally. That's not that does happen, of course. But right. you have to just, you know, you're an individual and you have to know what's going on with your body and get right. the information and, and, and be informed right. about what the potential right. consequences of waiting are. I wanted to touch also we had mentioned it earlier on mm -hmm. about having uh, why, you know, I don't know if we really delved into this deep enough, but once black women do pursue uh, forms of assisted reproductive, reproductive technology or what we call ART mm -hmm. and then more specifically IVF. Number one, the success mm -hmm. rates are lower and the miscarriage rates are higher. Yeah. Do we know why that is? We don't, you know, we're still trying to explore those outcomes and why they, they happen the way they do. Um, there have been some large studies. One of the largest studies came out of one of our societies, society for uh, assisted reproductive technology. They actually looked at, 140,000 outcomes, yeah. out, non-donor cycles for all races. And Black women, for some reason, had lower implantation and clinical pregnancy rates. The increased rates of miscarriage um, were noted as well. And studies have taken that further by looking at those same outcomes, but also controlling for those risk factors that Black women may have, um, hormonal levels, fibroids, um, age, tubal factor, and they still are seeing the same type outcomes. The, the key is that we need more research to actually yeah. explore why this is happening among black women who are basically they're finding cohorts of black women very similar to white women, meaning not having fibroids or having similar histories and still seeing a lower implantation yeah. pregnancy rate. So we definitely need more research, even with women who are using donor egg. Yeah. When you take away the egg factor, black women are still having lower success rates. So we definitely need more research to more look specific. into specifics on why that's happening. Okay. Um, so let's talk about a 30 year old female mm -hmm. and she is either not sure she wants to have kids or she's envisioning for whatever reason of mm -hmm. delaying childbearing. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what would you advise that she start thinking about, or if she's going in for a well woman exam, what should mm -hmm. be addressed? And I will say this, listen, yeah. I, we're both trained as OBGYNs <laughs> and we know what all the checklists for a well woman exam. Sure. Sure. Asking a woman what her future family planning is, is not really on that checklist and it's not yeah. addressed enough where we're getting involved with now, both mm -hmm. of us have subspecialized and I don't do the well woman exam anymore, but right. even, even for those that are, it's, it's not something that's necessarily on that checklist. So right. if, if someone's, re you know, age 30 or so, what you should she, know. what can she do? You know, I think a 30 year old, if they can't have the conversation with their, you know, women's health specialist, they can always sit with a re reproductive endocrinologist. The big conversation is kind of talking about what you think your goals are now and what your goals may change and, you know, how they may change in the future. So I talk to my women at 30, I say, you know, let's give you your options. You can actually do testing now. If you want to know about your ovarian reserve at this point, 
we can learn a little bit about it and see where you stand in comparison to other 30 year olds. Um, if there is a concern at that age, then we can talk about egg freezing. Um, if there's not a concern, we can still talk about egg freezing. Um, but if it's not something that you can pursue right now, it's something we can revisit in a year. You can always say, you know what, I'll come back in a year, redo my test with you and see if my reserve is holding strong or is it decreasing quickly. Um, for a lot of women, I talk to them, I'm very honest. I say, you know, egg freezing is not for everybody. There are going to be some women who decide, you know what, I don't feel the need to have a genetic child. No matter what happens, I will be open to other opportunities like adoption, um, donor egg. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you have to have a conversation and say, okay, well, testing your reserve may not be very um, important right now. You know, if you're not planning on acting on it and getting, uh, doing something with that result, or if it really wouldn't change what your options are in the future, you don't have to pursue that testing right now. I think it's really understanding what, how that woman feels about building her family in the future. You know, she may have a partner who has mm -hmm. a different view too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also want to add this mm -hmm. 30 year old me and how I felt <laughs> about how I felt about having kids and adoption and mm -hmm. what my, you know, was not the same thing how I felt when I was 38. Mm -hmm. You had to be willing to change your mind and understand that you might change your mind. Because when I was right before I met my husband at age 38, I had already decided eh, if I have kids, great. If I don't, I don't. Uh -huh. As soon as I met him, my whole world changed Change. and my whole view yeah. changed. And so we have to understand I am all for women who want to be child free. I'm all for women who, you know, want to wait and, and mm -hmm. are here. But you have to understand that you still might change your mind. And if you do, that's okay too, right. you know? So, and, and that's yeah. why egg freezing is important because yeah. it's almost an insurance backup plan. Doesn't mean yeah. you have to use them. I have women who freeze eggs who may not ever use the eggs because they meet a partner and they, they get pregnant on their own. And I say, well, these eggs can be, never be used or they can be used for baby number three when you actually may yeah. be over 40. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that conversation is very true. You're going to change your mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think back to your early thirties, late twenties, mm -hmm. It you know reproduction is not really. Yeah, no, I, I am not. I'm not. I wasn't the same person at 38 yeah. that I was at 35. I was yeah. in a completely different headspace then. Yeah. And I shocked myself when I was like, I want to have a baby. <gasps> you know, and you know, I did end up using egg donor. But I'm just saying, for those of us who think at 33, 34 that we're okay if we don't have kids, it might change. You might change your mind right. and just be open to that. Is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. I uh, and so let's talk about the 40 year old woman. If you have a 40 year old woman and you are deciding you want to conceive, whether it's for the first time or again, what should she be doing to advocate for herself or to get, be more informed about what's going on? The first step is meeting with a fertility specialist. Yes. The first step is getting tested. Um, prior pregnancy history needs to be reviewed. There are some mm -hmm. aspects of your prior pregnancy history that can impact where we go from there. It could impact future pregnancy. Um, outcomes and even the ch basically tr the chance of getting pregnant. P patients would be surprised that some of their delivery history can affect their fertility. Yes. So those conversations mm -hmm. have to happen. Um, things may not be as easy as they were if you conceived already, but while mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're 40, you've had babies in your 20s, 30s, yeah, things yeah. will be very different. Your conversation with the specialist will go over those differences, not just about eggs, but even medical changes medical history. Yeah. And I, I hear this from women in the babies mm -hmm. under 35 community, you know, of all ethnicities as well. Well, I had no problems with conceiving mm -hmm. at 35, 37, mm -hmm. and then at, all of a sudden at 41, nothing. Right. And they're, they're surprised, you yeah. know, and, um, we can't assume, um, that just because we had no problem before that it's not going to be a problem in the future. 
our bodies change, things change, and we have to be willing. I think the best tool we have is to be informed right. um, about what's going on with our bodies, what the stats mm -hmm. are, you know, as far as we'll talk specifically about uh, in the black community. If IVF success rates are, you know, not the, is great, you may not want to wait till you're 40 to get that information. Right. You may want to start a little bit earlier. Would you agree with that? I would. And it doesn't hurt to just get your testing done. Yeah. A lot of insurance, a lot of insurance um, coverage will cover the testing. And that's why I tell right. patients, if you have insurance, a lot of the time we can at least get testing done mm -hmm. and I can give you information. Right, you know, right. There's no need to do treatment if, you, if you're not ready, but at least you'll be armed with that information moving forward. And I think that's the biggest limitation in the black community is the lack of information being provided to women in order to make informed decisions. Okay. So, you know, I just want to, I'm going to ask you one more question and then we're going to go through and answer some questions here mm -hmm. for the audience. But, you know, one of the things I read about repeatedly is that black women are more likely to deal with the trauma of infertility and they, and they suffer for longer periods of time mm -hmm. with that trauma and they feel isolated and, and that they feel like they're not, um, they're, they're inadequate because they're not able to have a kid, a baby. What can we do to change that for them? And what can we do or what can we, how can we, what can we say here to help them be their own advocates? Yeah. I think number one is, you know, getting the right information. So, you know, if you need to bypass your OBGYN mm -hmm. or PCP, go find a fertility specialist, make an appointment. It won't, mm -hmm. it's not going to be difficult. Um, sit down and arm yourself with information. Number two, resources. There are so many great resources yes. from grants, to support yes. groups. And I, I'm a big advocate because a lot of my patients may join certain support groups that will really be helpful. Fertility for, uh, for Colored Girls is a great yes. uh, um, organization that has been around for a while that women can go and feel that they have a community of women going through the same thing with them. Resolve.org is another option mm -hmm. if you're looking for local um, uh, support, support groups. groups. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I, I really do think finding that community, it's growing. It yes. doesn't feel mm -hmm. like it and you feel like you're isolated, but it's growing. I pay attention when I see, when I read Michelle Obama's book or, yeah. you know, Gabrielle Union, when I read yeah. their books, it gives me such, uh, gives me such relief to mm -hmm. know that there are women who are brave enough to get to out talk there about and it, put yeah. the information and talk mm -hmm. about it because mm -hmm. a lot of us are dealing with it. I have friends, I have family, everybody is dealing with it in some sort of way. Yeah, I've dealt yeah. with it myself. We you know we've all been there and that, I think that's the number one take that women should understand like you're not alone and there are resources and getting your information with a specialist would be my first step and then finding support groups and and you know it, one of the you know i being transparent and sharing your journey on mm -hmm. facebook and that's not necessary it doesn't have to happen it's yeah. not for everybody nor sure. is it if you have a family that is more um not as accepting of pursuing assisted yeah. reproductive technology it's, it's, you don't have to tell everybody w about what's going on. You find your support group and people that support you, even if it's not your family members or your friends. So it doesn't mean that you can't find support elsewhere. So I do want to encourage women that are in that boat where you don't have those that are closest to you that are supporting you. You can find support elsewhere. And, and I'm going to put a blog up with this video and I'm going to list right. a lot of support groups uh, for black women as per specifically with uh, infertility issues so that, you know, and they're great resources. Um, and so it, they're, they're not as, as many, but it's getting better and there are some out there. And, and definitely your reproductive endocrinologists will have resources too, because they are yes. in the community. 
For me in Houston, Wheeler Baptist Church has their waiting room, which is amazing. Women can go there and sit down and talk about it. Um, Sparkles of Life. Um, there are other organizations like Andon Gives, the Cade Foundation. Your fertility doctor may be hooked into the community in your city and be able to give you those support cubes as well. So those right. are m many opportunities that are there. It's just finding them and we can help you with that. All right, so let's answer some questions here. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question. What are the chances of fibroids becoming cancerous, especially in premenopausal or perimenopausal women? Yeah, so that's very, very low. So okay. for most patients, they don't, that's not something anyone's going to experience in their lifetime. Um, I would say less than 5% would even see that, less than 1%. So I think the, the biggest, one yeah. of the biggest uh, signs that it could become a cancer is if it's, if it's fast growing, you have to worry right. about that. If you're all of a sudden feeling, you know, you may know you had fibroids and they've kind of hung around for a while. And then all of a sudden yeah. you're, you feel that you're getting more full um, mm -hmm. or that something's going on. You definitely need to be assessed to see if they're getting larger. Definitely. Uh, yeah. But, mm -hmm. but definitely a pre, you know, you know, the age is a big factor in it. You know, yeah, the yeah. older you are, the more scary it could be, but obviously younger patients is less risk. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, here's a question. Should you track your ovulation before starting IVF? So tracking your ovulation can be helpful as far as if you're trying on your own and you want to give it the full 12, six months, whatever time period is appropriate for your age. Um, but it's not necessary for IVF. When it comes to IVF, we are monitoring you through blood and ultrasound. So we will know what timing is perfect for your treatment. Um, but tracking ovulation can give your provider information about just how you know, things, how you've been doing as far as trying on your own, but it's not necessary in, in order to pursue IVF treatment. Right. And so uh, here's another mm -hmm. comment that someone made. And I'm just going to kind of summarize it. Um, yeah. A lot of comments about, I wish uh, my OBGYN had encouraged me to see an REI sooner. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, you don't have to have a referral to see an REI. Number no, one. you, some, yeah, you don't. Sometimes you may need a PCP referral depending PCP on your referral. insurance. Okay. But to be honest, most patients are able to schedule that appointment directly by themselves. Yeah. yeah. And then as far as the yeah. recurrent miscarriage or having miscarriages, mm -hmm. you know, um, a maternal fetal medicine specialist such as myself, mm -hmm. if there's not a, a you know, a, a fertility like uh, fibroids or, you know, something wrong with the uterine cavity or something that the doctor nerding can take care of. We can mm -hmm. see you as well because sometimes it's more right. of a, um, I don't know what, how to delineate the two, but yeah. it's not going to hurt to see my, something like myself as far as your current miscarriage goes. Yes. As a maternal fetal sure. medicine specialist, as a pre-conceptual conceptual visit or an REI. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of times we'll work you, you see me first, right. I see what's going on. I say, you know what, it's not, it's, I think it's more of a REI issue right. and vice versa. Exactly. So I have them go back, back and forth because again, that's what I do all day long right. is uh, with recurrent miscarriages. And then, you know, uh, we can s tell you where to go if it's something that we don't feel is in our, is our, for, because of a maternal fetal medicine reason. It's so uh, important. Exactly. Cause we'll see patients who have history of preterm delivery for cervical, you know, insufficiency, and we'll send to an MFM to discuss what that management will mean before trying to do, if they're pursuing IVF, it may be more mm -hmm. important to make sure that they have that consultation first. Yeah. Somebody here is asking about the tubal factor and mm -hmm. how, how do we know someone's tubes are blocked? So we actually have a few ways of testing that. One of the, one of the options is the hysterosalpingogram or HSG. Some women call it the dye test that's painful because you are, yeah. it is done awake. Um, we put dye in the uterus and that dye can be seen under x-ray. So when we push the dye into the uterus, we're taking x-ray pictures and if it spills on both sides, it shows your tubes are open. And okay. most of the time I will show patients pictures of what it should look like in the office. So they'll know what it's, you know, what their tubes, you know, open tubes look like. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other so, option would be just, mm -hmm. 
um, we actually go in directly with the scope and we actually flush the tubes directly. Yeah. Um, that's done under anesthesia. So I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it's okay. So if you have a history of having mm -hmm. um, the number one cause, well, not number one, one of the main causes of tubal factor uh, or having tubal disease would be from gonorrhea or chlamydia mm -hmm. or having pelvic inflammatory disease in the past or having mm -hmm. a ruptured appendix or having severe endometriosis. So mm -hmm. if you have any of those factors there and play in your history and you can't get pregnant, Right. You may want to see an REI to do an HSG, hysterosalpingogram, because there are some times, and I don't know if there's a certain percentage, where you actually right. do the HSG and actually unblocks the tube. Exactly. So sometimes you can actually flush mucus buildup in the tubes, and you'd mm -hmm. be surprised how women are able to conceive naturally after just getting an yeah. HSG. I, I hear so, it yeah. all the time. I'm not saying it's a cure-all. Don't take it away. Right. That I'm, Dr. Clark is saying it's a cure-all. I'm not saying that. However, right. there is something to be said for doing an HSV, especially if you right. have risk factors for having tubal disease, okay? Right. So, um, and again, I'll also mm -hmm. add here, and I, again, I'm not bashing in general. I'm not. I promise you. But I've seen some different interpretations of HSGs and hysteroscopies as well. Hysteroscopy is where they actually go in with the camera, put, inflate the, your uterus so they can see if there's any abnormalities with the lining of your uterus. That's direct, direct visualization as opposed to the HSG where they shoot the dye and they do an, it's like an x-ray where it looks at the dye that comes out. Those are two different things. It looks for kind of the same things, but somewhat different, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. you do them for different reasons, but I've also seen some, you know, again, these guys look at it all day, every day. This is what they do. So yeah. I think that's the best thing for your buck is to have it done with, uh, with one of these, uh, with an REI. That's just right. my opinion. And, yeah. and we can actually guide you. Sometimes an HSG is just not appropriate. The hysteroscopy okay. is more appropriate if you're telling me, oh, I had this r random bleeding in the middle of my cycle or pelvic pain. Sometimes those are polyps and fibroids that need to be addressed through a hysteroscopy. The advantage of hysteroscopy too is that we can fix the problem at the same time. Polyps can be removed, fibroids can be removed. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, so we're taking care of it and also helping you get ready for your next steps, checking your tubes and everything. So it's more thorough. Oh, we just answer, answered an, uh, that question. Someone just mm -hmm. asked the difference between HSG and a, um, a hysteroscopy. hysteroscopy. So, <laughs> you know, uh, we have a few, like three more minutes. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get to get to everybody else's questions, but we'll talk about this again. Um, again, I, I wanted to close with uh, Dr. Nerdine. It was how can, you know, we talked about all things infertility, but I also wanted to focus on, focus on black women. Yeah. Uh, I, I want you to give some parting words on how, how can they advocate and be more of an advocate for themselves, given yeah. what they're faced with. And it is a reality and we have to acknowledge yeah. that. What can they do to better advocate? Number one, you know, I, I just put myself in, the, in these, it's easy for me to be put in these shoes because I've been there. Be brave. That's big. Mm -hmm. Be brave. Advocate for yourself by going out there and arming yourself with information. You know, if you don't want to make an appointment with a specialist, there are going to be some resources online that are credible. American Society of Reproductive Medicine has a patient basically section that you can actually look up information yeah. directly, even before you meet with the reproductive endocrinologist. I'll have a lot of patients who are who are armed with that information. Some are not, some, you know, some are, but the biggest thing is be brave and be your own advocate by reaching and going out for that information, whether it's with the doctor or reputable sites. Um, find your support group. We talked about this earlier. There are mm -hmm. gonna be support groups that, you know, maybe support in your family's not there, but there are support groups for minority women, mm -hmm. black women especially. And, you know, use your local resources with your, your, your fertility doctor will have more, even more local resources like support groups you can sit with and talk, talk to. Um, you will, you know, build a community and it'll make it very easy to reach out 
and say, hey, is anybody else dealing with this? And it makes it that much easier to move yeah. forward knowing you have people who've been there and are there with you. And it takes away the isolation. Right. I think that's number one. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now listen to the next episode on gender-neutral language in healthcare settings and equitable care for transgender and gender nonconforming individuals.